But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as the branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Let us pray. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you have breathed out your word through your holy apostles and by the Holy Spirit, holy men being carried along by the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Lord, you have sent forth the power of heaven through the ascended Christ in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Send forth your spirit again, not to duplicate, but to amplify Pentecost and extend what was accomplished once and for all, so that all the nations, peoples, and tongues would confess your name. Lord, send forth your spirit through the preached word that we would see the way in which we should walk and then we would walk in it. For when your word goes out, it never returns void without accomplishing your will. Please, Lord, may we not grieve the Holy Spirit by our indifferent listening, by casual hearing. We want to be not just hearers, but doers of your word. Speak now, for your servants are listening. Amen. Michael Stipe of REM famously sang, It's the end of the world and I feel fine. He isn't alone. People today either ignore, downplay, or even outright mock the ending of the world, but this is nothing new. Today, as with the days of Noah, people were marrying, burying, and carrying on without heed to the fear of God or the coming judgment. If the epistle of St. James is correct, we live among a wicked and adulterous generation and by generation, a word which appears in our text, I mean the moral category of fallen mankind, Adam's sons and daughters who serve themselves and not God and who live for this life only and not the life which is to come. At times, it can seem like no one cares about the end of the world, that among the great mass of humanity, there are only three kinds of people, the Epicurean, Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. The empirical, if I can't see it, I won't believe it. Or the agnostic, who knows? Can anybody know? But the text before us this morning addresses a fourth category, and it is a smaller one. It's the elect, or God's chosen people, his church. As the elect, then, this morning, how do you live as someone who believes in the end of the world and who expects and anticipates the coming judgment? How are you doing in living your life in light of eternity? Or 
Are you more like the Epicureans, the empiricists, or agnostics in this matter? Last week, we saw that the end of the temple is intended to help you prepare to understand and embrace and be ready for the end of the world. The temple itself actually was built architecturally to resemble the world. So the top of the temple was blue to resemble the sky, and we have curtains with stars on them and so forth. The temple is like the universe in miniature, and so naturally to the disciples' minds, when they heard about the ending of the temple as Jesus leaves the temple for the last time, they would run in their thinking to questions about the end of the world. And that's why, having discussed the end of the temple in our text this morning, Jesus moves from talking about that end and that destruction to the destruction of the world itself. What Jesus says here about the end of the world is intended to help his disciples to live their lives in this world as we anticipate the ending of the world. And just as Jesus gave these words to them, he's giving these words to you to help you live as well in light of eternity awaiting the end of the world. So when Jesus tells the disciples about the end of the world, he tells them three things that they need to know that I believe helps them and helps you live to live your life for God. First of all, it helps you to know that the end of the world will not only restore but elevate the very creation of God. Second, it helps you to know that at the end of the world, Jesus will be revealed as the perfect man. And third, it helps you to know that at the end of the world, as his elect people, you have nothing to fear. So first of all, the end of the world will help you know how to live because you are being shown here in this passage that creation itself will not be destroyed, but it'll be renewed and even elevated or perfected. We see this in verses 24 and 25 of our text, but in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken. I'm calling these verses a short description of a cosmic catastrophe. The leading objects in the, in the heavens are humbled, eclipsed, or otherwise diminished in some manner in recognition of the glory of God coming in judgment. Now, this coming cosmic catastrophe isn't new. Jesus isn't describing something here for the first time. In fact, in the Old Testament, the sun, the moon, and the stars are regularly described as being eclipsed, darkened, and diminished in some supernatural manner at times of the righteous judgment of God. Two verses from Isaiah prove the point. Isaiah 13.10 Isaiah writes, For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. And then Isaiah 34, 4, All the host of heaven shall rot away, and skies will be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall, as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. Scholar Greg Beale explains that the language of these Old Testament texts is describing the destruction of the cosmos. The prophets have a literal vision of the end of history, 
but that literal vision was metaphorically experienced or worked out at various times as God's judgment has broken into human history, such as in Isaiah, judgment on the nations which were oppressing Israel. Or, as is the case also in other books of the Bible, God himself breaking in in judgment on his own people. We see this in Amos and Hosea, among other things, and Joel. So how is this helpful to know that the creation itself is, is being dissolved and unwound? Why is this helpful to know this? I said that we're being shown here that creation isn't going to be destroyed. It's being renewed and reformed. Knowing that, that the creation itself is, is going to be embarrassed or bashful at the coming judgment of God at the end of the world, I think helps us to live our lives knowing that this is a fallen creation. Sin, you see, hasn't just affected human hearts. Sin is in the, in the soil. It's in the trees. It's in the sky. It's in the planets. It's in the weather. Creation itself, we're told in the Bible, groans under the curse and burden of sin. And at the coming judgment of God, creation will bend and almost break under the weight of God's holiness as it's sanctified and purified and renewed. The world, the end of the world will not destroy creation. It will destroy sin in creation. And we see that pictured here with these constellations becoming dimmed. I think this also helps you live your life because you recognize that ultimately the sun, the moon, and the stars, and the whole creation, the theater of your life, you must work out your salvation in the midst of a fallen world. Redemption cannot come from this world. This world is fallen. If it weren't fallen, then the sun wouldn't be bashful at the coming of the glory of God. Redemption must come from heaven. Ours is a city which comes down from above, not which is one which we can build here. This is why the book of Revelation describes heaven in terms that both mirror this life and go beyond it. It is to be a place both without temple and without sun. God fulfills Christ the substance of both temple and sun in this world. Revelation 21, verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light the nations will walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and the gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. So the end of the world here helps us live our lives because it shows us that creation itself is not going to be destroyed, but renewed and then elevated and perfected into its glory that it was intended from the beginning. But also the end of the world reveals, secondly, Jesus is the perfect man. This also helps you live your life here and now. We see this in our passage in verse 26. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. The Son of Man here is Jesus. He's taken this title for himself throughout the Gospel of Mark. It's his favorite title to describe himself. Here especially, though, we need to see that this title is not one that he came up with himself, but it also comes from the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel writes, 
I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. I want to emphasize here what Daniel says is the one like a son of man comes to the ancient of days. So the coming of the son of man is not a coming from heaven to earth in Daniel. It's a coming from the clouds, wherever that is, to the almighty God who is given this title the Ancient of Days. This passage shows Jesus as the perfect man, and it helps you live your life. It helps you because the coming is not from heaven to earth, but from the clouds to the Ancient of Days. It's like Jesus coming from the dressing room to the full court of Almighty God, where he's revealed or manifested or displayed as the Son of Man. It's like a celebration of someone who is already king, but the coronation is a formal recognition of his kingship, that it is fully and finally accomplished. In other words, since he comes to the Ancient of Days, it's a presentation of the Son of Man. The perfect man is presented to God. And in presenting this Son of Man, this perfect man to God, he's given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. What I think this reveals is what's most important about the end of the world is not what's happening on earth, but what's happening in heaven before the face of God. Almighty God is receiving formally, finally, and fully the perfect man, Jesus Christ. In being presented to the Ancient of Days, Jesus is being presented as the perfect son, the new and faithful Israel in contrast with the disobedient son that the earthly Israel was. In Daniel's passage, there are four kingdoms which effectively attempt to mirror the glory of God and fail. And the last kingdom that comes is represented by the Son of Man. This is the Israel that Israel was always meant to be. This is the people of God that you need to be a part of. The heavenly people of God. Heavenly because... Christ, the Son of God, appears clothed, robed with our humanity in glory, in heaven, before the face of God. Now this happened when he died, he was buried, and he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven 40 days later. He was, his humanity was presented before God. That's happened. That's in the past. But apparently it's going to happen again when, when all of God's enemies are placed beneath his feet. And he's shown for the visible eye. They will see, our text says. Every eye will see. Every knee will bow. And every tongue confess that that perfect man is the only way to be in fellowship with God. Salvation by works is therefore absolutely and positively established. But it's not your works that save you. It's his You see, he's presented before God as the perfect man. Not to say we're not saved by works. Someone has to obey God's law. Someone has to be saved by works, but it's not you. You failed as the old Adam, and Christ as the new Adam is coming from the clouds of glory, coming. So the second coming, in a very real sense, is his coming 
to the presence of God as the perfect man, having obeyed in your and in my place. Salvation by works is not ruled out, then it's transferred. It's not your works, but his as the perfect man. And our text shows that while Christ has been enthroned already at his death and resurrection, as I've mentioned, the ultimate, final, perfect, and consummate enthronement has yet to happen. It is still future. In one sense, he's been presented before God, and he is seated at the right hand. Very true. But another, his perfect, visible, and final manifestation, the epiphany that we await, the revelation, the the drawing back of the curtains, the veil being parted in the temple, has yet to happen with our eyes. We will fully and perfectly see him in a creaturely manner. His parousia, the revelation of Christ, is still to come. You need to know this. That helps you live your life. This life is designed to be a life where you walk by faith and not by sight. Knowing that there is an epiphany to come, a, a revelation that it hasn't happened yet, will help you endure the wrath of Satan in this age, who though he is a defeated foe, he seems to have a long chain. And he wanders about and causes all manner of trouble and wreaks havoc amongst God's people. Though he is a defeated foe, he loves to to disrupt the lives of the elect. You need to know this also to endure the tyranny of men, the selfish idolatry of your friends and family members, or great men and women on earth, the kings and presidents, the, the prime ministers, the governors. Their lives will come to an end. Our text in Revelation that I already read said, all the glory of kings in that day will be brought before the throne of God. It's like Putin and Johnson and Merkel and President Xi, Jinping, will in wheelbarrows made by God bring all their glory before the throne of God and dump it at his feet and they will give an account for all the glory that they received on earth, all the power they were entrusted to. I have a feeling that will be a very terrifying day for many of these rulers that I've just mentioned. As Maximus says in Gladiator, the time for honoring yourselves will soon come to an end. Everything they bragged about on earth will be presented to God as rightly belonging to him in that day. All their boasted pomp and show, all their legacy, all their power, all their books, all their works, all their money, all their ambition, these will all be placed at the feet of the Ancient of Days when the Son of Man in clouds of glory is presented, the perfect man, the great king, presented before God. And he'll look at these puny earthly rulers and he'll laugh in glorious and holy and perfect retributive justice. This helps us live our lives in this fallen age. So at the end of the world, we see that creation itself will be restored and elevated. We see that Jesus will be revealed as the perfect man. And finally, third, we see that the elect have nothing to fear. Not only is Jesus' teaching here on the end of the world helpful to his disciples because they they know that creation will be restored and that Jesus will be revealed as the perfect man, 
They are greatly comforted because they have nothing to fear. Look at verse 27 of the text. And then he will send out his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. This shows that you have nothing to fear for a number of reasons. You have nothing to fear because there is no danger for you in this time. In this time when the heavenly bodies are are bashful and being eclipsed in some supernatural fashion and all the other troubles are happening on the planet as well, the elect will have nothing to fear. You are in no danger in that day. The hand of God will cover you. You will suffer no harm, though there will be great mourning and weeping and gnashing of teeth. The angels of God, who are ministers of God's mission on earth, as we see in Hebrews 1, in the last day are going to be gathering God's people from every corner of the planet. Not one of the little ones who believe in Jesus will be lost. No one will be able to snatch them out of his hand. All who have been washed in the blood and baptized in his name, every single person who has believed the gospel, however feebly, and are counted among the elect, all of his chosen ones will persevere in that great and awful day. The great and terrible day of wrath holds no danger for God's chosen people. It is a day, if I may say this, that we should look forward to. It is a day that we should long for. It is a day that we should crave and yearn with every fiber of our beings. Not because we're looking forward to the judgment of the ungodly, but because we cannot wait in our heart for the revelation of a sinless Savior who will finally put to death and end all of our battles and troubles and trials against sin. But this is not a day that those who do not believe should anticipate, however. There is great danger for the unredeemed. I don't say non-elect, though, because just as no one but the Father knows the day or the hour, so no one but the Father and the Son knows his own elect people. It's not given to human beings to certify whether you're elect or not. This is a question for the day of judgment. What we can do is we can ask this. Do you believe? Do you believe in the Son of God? Do you believe in the perfect man, Jesus Christ? Do you believe in the Messiah of God? Do you believe in the man from Galilee? Do you believe that he was born of a virgin? Do you believe he was born under the law? Do you believe he lived a holy, harmless, and undefiled life? Do you believe that he gave his life as a ransom for many? Do you believe that he died under the cursed wrath of God so that you might be free from God's judgment? Do you believe that when he rose from the dead, he broke the chains of death and that death no longer has its mastery over you? Do you believe that he crushed the serpent's head when he rolled the stone away from the tomb where he lay for those three days? Do you believe that after he rose from the dead, he appeared to the twelve and he appeared to more than 500? Do you believe that after 40 days he rose again into heaven, being taken out of sight from his gathered apostles? And do you believe that he is coming again at the end of the world? This point has been that the coming of Christ in judgment, the coming of the Son of Man, his presentation to the Ancient of Days, his revelation, this parousia, holds no fear for God's people. You should not tremble at this day unless you're trembling with excitement, a a yearning, and a longing 
for the revelation of God. To the elect, those who've confessed with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead, to these ones, there's no danger. But to you who do not believe, there is great danger. There is danger for the hypocrite, but not for the humble sinner. There's danger for the righteous, but not for the weak and needy backslider. There's danger for the arrogant and the rich and the powerful who use their earthly possessions to advance their own cause. But for those who are poor in spirit, theirs is and will be the kingdom of heaven. There is danger for the idolater, but not for those who worship Christ in spirit and in truth. There is danger for those who deny the judgment and the cross and the tomb, either by their words or by their lives. But for those who believe, you have already passed out of judgment. You have passed through death. And that day poses no danger for the elect of God. The other thing I want to say about, about this in terms of bringing comfort for you and for having no fear for you is this that the great day of judgment and the end of the world will finally and fully bring your exile to an end. Death or judgment, whichever comes first, brings an end to the exile for the elect. In these verses, the gathering of the elect is, again, described in Old Testament terms. We, we need to know our Bibles in order to understand these things. Deuteronomy chapter 30 and Isaiah 11 both describe the gathering of God's people from the four corners of the world. In both of those contexts, what, ha- what God has in mind in speaking to his people is that his people have gone into exile out of Israel, out of the promised land. And the promise then is that he would regather them from the four corners of the world to this earthly land. And why is this comforting? Because the Christian life is described elsewhere in the New Testament, like in Peter and in James, as a diaspora, as a pilgrimage and is a kind of global exile. The Christian knows his home is not here. What you have here is just a taste. It's a down payment of the coming glory. The world is the only heaven you will ever have as an unbeliever. But as the elect of God, this world, this life, is the only hell you will ever know. Purgatory is not something that happens to a Christian after you die. Purgatory is what you experience in this life as the troubles and trials of exile hone you and shape you and refine you. The battle that you wage against sin, your inner turmoils, the pulling and the stretching, the tug of war against your desires, the things that you ought not to do, and yet you do and I do. That's the purgatory of the Christian. It is your sanctification, but it happens in this life because it is given to man to die once and then the judgment. The purging of your sins happens by the sanctifying trials that God gives you to endure in this life. The comfort then of the coming judgment or of the end of your life is that your warfare is over. You graduate from the church militant into the church triumphant. You graduate and you move from having to fight the battle against sin to being able to enjoy your rest of all your enemies. Heaven And the end of the world for the believer is like the end of a jail sentence. And who would celebrate? In jail, truly celebrate. Death and judgment are the long-awaited celebration, liberation of the believer. When the angel struck Peter's chain when he was in prison and he went free and then worshipped, 
This is the end of the world for the Christian. The angel strikes the chain that binds you to this life and all that is mortal, all that is hard, all that is painful, all that is frustrating. The angel strikes that chain. The doors of your jail cell are open and you walk free and you sing a hymn with all the gathered saints in glory. The great Puritan teacher and preacher Thomas Watson describes in a vivid way the comfort of the coming judgment for a believer when he compares our lives to that of a bird on a string. Imagine a bird trying to flap its wings and yet its leg is tied to the earth with a string. Death or the end of the world for the believer snips the string and the bird then is finally free to fly as she was designed. Watson says that death or the end of the world is like a ship with full sail yet under anchor. Imagine a ship with all of its sails hoisted and yet a massive anchor is holding it to shore. This is the believer in this life. You're, all of your sails are filled with wind and yet you pull against the anchor, you pull against the dock, you pull against the planet and you can't sail as you were designed. So the end of the world cuts the anchor, that which has been holding you back for such a long time, such a difficult and arduous journey. You're finally free to sail into the ocean of God's eternal rest. Watson says it's like a polluted forest where trees grow but are stunted, and death is the clean air act of glory. It's the removal of all that poisons the earth's air. So that while we grow like stunted trees with curled leaves and brown and shriveled branches here on this planet, when the fresh air of glory blows at the end of the world, all of the elect will rise into their full stature as giant oaks and giant cedars in the courts of our God. In that place, we will be, as Paul says in Ephesians 5.27, without spot, or wrinkle, or any blemish whatsoever. And if you weren't convinced that you have nothing to fear, Jesus adds in explaining the parable of the fig tree, he says in verse 31, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. If you had any doubt that these things were true, Jesus' very words promise us that they are more sure than even the very earth itself, which we've seen, is going to pass away in its present form. In conclusion, then, when it comes to the end of the world, the elect, it would seem, are quite a small minority. If you're in a public school, if you work in a secular field, in the workplace, certainly if you turn on the television, the news, social media, the movies, books, where are the Christians? If they make an appearance in any of these places, they're put on a poster and they're made fun of or mocked as people that are small-minded. The people who look forward to the coming judgment, the people who live in light of eternity, the people who welcome death as the ending of an earthly sojourn and their entrance into an eternal glory, where are those people? Far more numerous, as I mentioned in the beginning of my sermon this morning, are those who live like agnostics who knows? Empiricists, I won't believe it if I can't see it. And Epicureans, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. How do you live your life? Do you live your life as if this were the only life? Do you live like all that matters is what you see, 
feel, feel, taste, and touch? Do you live like sons and daughters of the day, honoring and fearing God, not carousing at night and making mischief at night? Do you live like someone who sees that my great need is for the Holy Spirit of God, by which I have a forged bond with my risen and ascended Lord, Jesus, the Son of Man who is coming on clouds of glory and will be presented as the perfect human before the face of a holy God, your perfection and your good works. That Spirit which lives in you is the Spirit of the Son of Man. Do you walk in the power of that Spirit? Do you live in light of eternity? Do you live, is your heaven now, is your mind and heart set on the things which are above? In all cases, the command here is to trust Jesus and his word, which will never fail over all that you hear, see, or feel, over your own appetites, even over your own uncertainties, doubts, and ignorance. Jesus is claiming that his word is more permanent than anything you can experience in this life anywhere, period. And what's more, he asks you to take his word on this. Believe him. Let's pray. Great God in heaven, we thank you that the end of the world is coming. And our feelings about this is feelings of complacency, feelings of hope and joy, not because we don't care or we don't believe it, but because we count ourselves amongst the elect, those who believe in the name of Jesus and his, re his resurrection. We're comforted and have no fear for that day, Lord, because you tell us that we need not fear. And we trust you. And Lord, for those who are struggling with their faith or belief that the world will end as the Bible says it will end, for those who are partying and living it up as Epicureans, eating, drinking, and making merry, believing that once we die, our existence completely ceases, I pray that you will awaken them from their slumber. I pray that they would not be comforted. I pray they would not feel fine. I pray, Lord, we pray that you would revive your sleepy saints, particularly, Lord, the young people who are hearing messages from so many different quarters that say they have nothing to worry about and that these, these things are a bunch of stories, Lord. Would you break into our lives Reveal yourself to us. Give us your Holy Spirit. Revive your church. May we live like the end time people of God. People who are waiting and preparing, longing for, praying for the great and awful day of the Lord. And living, Lord, today in light of eternity, sharing the gospel with our loved ones and our friends doing great work for God, knowing that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Church House, located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.